This episode of Gun Blog Variety Cast brought to you by LawofSelfDefense.com. Go to LawofSelfDefense.com forward slash variety to learn about your state's self-defense laws. Sign up for one of their online or in-person seminars or buy the book Law of Self-Defense and get 10% off when you use the discount code variety at checkout. That's LawofSelfDefense.com forward slash variety. Sit back, relax, and take a ride with us on the Gunblog Variety Cast, episode 48. Welcome back to the Gunblog Variety Cast. I'm your host, Sean, from NC Gunblog, and with me today is Adam from Guns, Cars, Tech Blog. How are you doing, Adam? I'm much better now. I can see clearly most of the day. Yeah, but I see you're still wearing those sunglasses. Well, I did just put eye drops in right before we started, so I'm a little bit light sensitive right when that happens. Uh, but 10 minutes from now, I'll, I'll be fine. Okay, good. Well, let's go straight to the tactical dog and fitness report. 24.3 dog walking miles, and it's been short walks every evening, and Dysa seems to be a lot better for it. Well, that's good. So Tactical Dog had Water Day on Saturday, and by Tactical Dog, I mean really uh, the little ones, uh, all three of them, <laughs> got to got to play in the pool that we actually bought for Tactical Dog when she was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was a that was a lot of fun. But um, we had the night before just recorded the podcast where we talked about how uh, you know dogs get really hot and you can't take them out two days in a row and all that stuff. Well, she was probably outside for. I don't know, 45, 60 minutes. She went inside and she laid down on an air conditioning vent. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, you poor thing. And then the next day, uh, uh, we took the boys out again in the pool. And uh, we, I, I kept uh, Tactical Dog in the house because I, I didn't want her to have any problems. Yeah, I've been taking good care of uh, Dices. Boy, Ben loves squirting Casey with the uh, water hose. It was great. <laughs> And now it's time for Blue Collar Prepping with that bratty kid sister of the gun blogosphere, Aaron Paulette. This week, Aaron talks about simple skills you can practice during the summer doldrums. Come on, every pony! It's time for Blue Collar Prepping with Aaron Paulette! Aaron, it's too hot outside to do things, and the internet's full of drama. All the TV shows are repeats, and I'm bored. What can I do to keep my mind sharp and my skills ready? It just so happens that I have five suggestions for ways to practice your survival skills that will build muscle memory. And my first two suggestions can be performed in the comfort of your living room, so you can do them while you watch the news or listen to your favorite podcast. One, using a length of paracord, because we all have paracord, right? Yeah. And a reference manual you can learn to tie knots. My personal preference are things called Pro-Knot Reference Cards, and they are a booklet of six plastic cards that are riveted together and printed front and back with diagrams on how to tie a knot and what it's good for. And these reference cards are pocket-sized, they're lightweight, they lie flat, they're waterproof, and you can get them for both outdoor knots and fishing knots, and they're each about $5 on Amazon. So here are the knots that I think every camper, prepper, and survivalist ought to know. The square knot. It's your simple, no-nonsense knot for tying non-critical things together. If you were in the Boy Scouts, you know this one. The bowline. This is the classic rabbit comes out of the hole around the tree and back down the hole knot. It's very easy to tie once you've practiced it. It forms a secure loop, and it doesn't jam, and it is likely the knot you will use if you need to rescue someone. The tautline hitch. This is the knot you want to use when tying your tent to a stake in the ground because you can slide the knot up and down to adjust the tension without loosening the tightness of the knot itself. And so once you've set it in place, it holds tightly under pressure. Now, some people will swear by a clove hitch or a rolling hitch, but the first one just can't be trusted, and the second, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to go to that effort, you might as well just tie a constrictor knot instead. It's as fast or faster to tie than a rolling hitch, and it grips itself without working loose. And in addition to hitching animals to posts, you can also use it to tie up bags. The sheet bend. 
It's a great way to join two pieces of rope together, even if they're different sizes. The figure eight knot can be used to create a non-slip loop at the end of a rope, but the knot itself is fast, easy way to create a stopper knot and prevent loose ends of other knots from coming loose. The fisherman's knot is pretty self-explanatory. It ties a hook to a fishing line. The traditional version is known as the clinch knot, but you can achieve the same effect with a uni knot or a palomar knot. For standard monofilament fishing line, it doesn't really matter, so find a knot you like best and use it. The double fisherman's knot and its big brother, the blood knot, are great for tying links of broken fishing line together. The sheep shank is a bit of a trick knot in that it's used to shorten a rope without cutting it. Once you're finished, you just release the tension and you have all of that length of rope back. And speaking of trick knots, the mooring hitch is my personal favorite. It's used to secure a line to an object, but it's made with a quick release loop. You just tug on the free end and the knot dissolves. Now, there are, of course, many more knots to learn, but in my opinion, these are some of the more important ones. And once you've figured out how to tie them, the next time you sit down in front of the TV to veg out, just grab a length of paracord and see if you can tie them from memory. If you can, great! Just keep practicing them to build up your muscle memory. And if you can't, well, you just pull out that reference manual and you study it until you can. Now, the second thing you can make in front of your television is a fire starter using just cotton and petroleum jelly. Now, while you can, of course, use regular cotton cosmetic balls, a cheaper alternative is to empty the lint trap from your dryer after you've just dried a load of cotton material like uh, t-shirts or underwear and use that. Now, making these fire starters is very simple. You just scoop up a wad of petroleum jelly with your fingertips and work it into the cotton until it is just thoroughly impregnated. Then you roll these into balls you know, about quarter size or the size of your thumb and store them in a plastic baggie, an Altoid tin, an old prescription bottle. And to use them, you take one out and you rip it into a little bird's nest and you just apply fire or a spark. Not only should they catch quickly, but they will burn for several minutes. Best of all, these fire starters last practically forever. I have never heard of one of them going bad. The petroleum jelly acts as a preservative. Speaking of sparks, our third activity is practicing making a fire with a ferro rod. While this does require you to go outside, I'm pretty sure you'd end up going outside for this anyway, because many people like to have summer cookouts on the grill, and you don't want to do that indoors. So this one is very simple. Instead of starting a fire with matches and lighter fluid, try to build one using tender kindling and a ferro rod. And hey, if you've already made one of those cotton ball fire starters, use one of those. Not only will this give you good practice for starting a fire in a non-emergency situation, it will make you appreciate the modern convenience of a lighter that much more. One thing you do need to know about using a ferro rod is that you never, ever use the blade of a knife to make the sparks. Not only can you break your rod this way, you will also chew up the edge of your knife. And if you end up doing that, you'll need to know how to sharpen a knife using a file or a stone. And that's skill number four. That's not really something I can instruct you on over a podcast, but I have links to both uh, written instructions and videos in the show notes. And once you get good at it, you may find, like I do, that sharpening knives is soothing and meditative. And finally, you can learn how to find north just using an analog watch. You can practice the skill at the beach, at poolside, or when you're crossing a parking lot looking for your car. And here's what you do. Holding the watch horizontally, you point the hour hand in the sun's direction. Find the angle between the hour hand and the 12 o'clock mark. Cut that angle in half and imagine a line going in that direction. And then that line is pointing south. If you're in the southern hemisphere, well, this technique isn't going to work for you. You have to learn one that's slightly different. Now, since this bisected angle points south, logic tells us that the opposite direction is clearly north. So congratulations, you have now found the four cardinal compass points using just your watch and the sun. These all sound like useful skills to practice, Aaron. I'll be sure to give them a try next time I'm bored. Okay, Sean, see you next week. See you next week, Aaron.
If you'd like to read more from Erin, check out her blog, lurkingrhythmically.blogspot.com. So, Sean, you were in the Navy. You already know all the knots, right? Uh, I was a boiler operator. So? No, they didn't teach us much. I mean, I, of course, I knew how to tie a square knot, but I knew that to begin with. And I did take a sailing class while I was in the Navy. They had subsidized, like, you know, MWR, Morale Welfare Recreation. They had a sailing club. So they taught me how to tie the bowline so that I could haul the sail up. And let me tell you, learn how to tie a bowline. It's a great knot. You can do all kinds of cool stuff with it. Impress your friends. Use it to rescue people. It's great. I'm not sure about the rest of that stuff, but bowling definitely learned that. All right. Felons behaving badly. Three men charged in robbery of Greensboro Pizza Hut. Dateline Greensboro. Three men have been arrested in connection with a Monday robbery of a pizza hut. Charged with robbery with a dangerous weapon and conspiracy to commit felony are Suspect 1, Suspect 2, and Suspect 3. The men are accused of robbing the Pizza Hut at 2344 Randleman Road about 12.20 p.m. Monday. So right at lunch. Who robs a pizza place at lunchtime? Well, that's where the money is, I guess. Uh, okay. Suspect <laughs> 3 and Suspect 1 are accused of walking into the restaurant with guns and demanding money while Suspect 2 waited in a Ford Expedition, said Susan Danielson, police spokeswoman. One of the men fired a gun in the restaurant, police said. It's not known yet which person fired the gun. No one was injured. The men were arrested by Burlington police about 12.30 p.m. Monday based on a description of, of the suspect vehicle. Well, so what kind of three people are going to go rob the pizza place at lunchtime? Probably concealed carry permit holders, right? Right. Little road rage. That's what I keep getting told. Because, you know, if we just let any ordinary citizen carry a gun, then, you know, these sort of things are going to happen. Right. Suspect number one, resisting officer, 5-8-2004, misdemeanor class two. Possessed purchased malt beverage under 21, 6-28-2004, misdemeanor class one. Wanton injury to persons or property less than $200, 3-19-2005, misdemeanor class one. Assault on a female, 5-6-2005, misdemeanor class A1. Possessed schedule six, 5-21-2005, misdemeanor class three. Robbery with dangerous weapon, 9-30-2005, felon class D. Robbery with a dangerous weapon, 11-4-2005, felon, class D. Suspect number two, this was the getaway driver. Driver's license revoked, 8-18-2005, misdemeanor, class 1. And driver's license revoked, 6-25-2012, misdemeanor, class 1. So let me get this straight. Their driver was a guy who can't drive. Well, it's not that he can't drive, it's that he doesn't have a license. I know, but that's the only thing. He had to have been a really terrible driver. Well, he kept getting pulled over without a license, so yeah, there is that. <laughs> but note that so far we've had a felon go in and a guy with a couple of driver's license revoked stay out. Suspect number three, another one of the people who went in. Common law robbery, 9-18-2006, felon class G. Possessed with intent to sell, schedule two. 10-25-2006, felon class H. Possessed schedule six. 2-15-2009, misdemeanor class A-1. Drug paraphernalia, use, possess, 2-15-2009, common law robbery, 1-16-2011, felon, class G, driver's license revoked, 4-23-2013, misdemeanor, class 1, larceny, 7-22-2013, misdemeanor, class 1, possess schedule 6, 10-19-2013, misdemeanor, class 3, interfering with emergency communication, 6-25-2014, misdemeanor, class A-1, and wanton injury to persons or property, Greater than $200, 625-2014, misdemeanor class 2. That sounds like he broke a police radio. Interfering with police communication is usually a charge that they file in a domestic violence case. Like, if you're yelling at your wife or your girlfriend and she goes to call 911 and you hang up the phone or you, like, pull the plug out of the wall. Ah, I see. I see. So maybe he smashed a cell phone. Yeah, that's interfering with emergency communication. There may be other things that it could be, but that particular one is how it's usually uh, charged in the state. So uh, pretty much the people you would expect who are going to rob a pizza joint at lunchtime. Yeah, fun times. This week on Foreign Policy for Grownups, Nikki looks at how the anti-austerity Greek vote could continue to cause problems all across the Eurozone. So Nikki, I've been following the news since last time we talked about Greece. And it looks like the Greece held their referendum about whether or not to accept the conditions that their creditors set in order to tap into more EU bucks. So what's happened since then? Several things, actually. 
First of all, for all his big talk about how Greece was going to stand up to the Europeans and determine its own destiny and not allow people who are, well, you know, helping it pay off its debts and giving it money to set conditions by which the debtor must abide because it's not like they haven't defaulted or cooked the books or anything before, blah, blah, blah. That was all for naught. The Greeks voted no on the conditions set by the rest of the EU, but at the last minute, Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras caved in to the rest of Europe and agreed on nearly all the conditions, making the entitled Greeks soil themselves in rage. It looks like Tsipras finally realized that his foolish pride and the Greeks' entitlement mentality was going to cost his country the economy. Quote, Either we are going to accept these draconian measures, or it is the sudden death of our economy through the continuation of the closure of the banks. So it's an agreement that's practically forced upon us, he told BBC Radio recently. Wah, wah, wah. Sudden death? Not like they haven't been having this problem for a decade. Note the petulant whining about their victimhood. It's not like they haven't been spending beyond their means for years and cooking the books to hide it or anything. Yep, everybody's fault but their own. So what was the reaction of the rest of Europe? Well, the French and the Italians tried to soften the blow a bit. Italy has its own debt issues. If you remember a couple of years back, Italy was part of what we affectionately referred to as the pigs debtor nations. That's Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain. And France has Francois Hollande at the helm, the same socialist fruitcake who tried to tax the wealthy into poverty by implementing a 75% income tax rate on the rich. So is it really any surprise that these two nations were working to help Greece siphon yet more money from the Europeans? Doesn't sound surprising at all. How about other European nations? Well... Amusingly, another PIGS member is squealing, no pun intended, unofficially, but still. Spain has this anti-austerity party that's gaining popularity. My guess is because Spain is similar to Greece in its zeal to spend a ton of money it doesn't have, and the Spaniards like free crap. The party is called Podemos. It's gained a lot of popularity recently and become the third biggest party in Spain ahead of a general election due around the end of this year. The rise in anti-austerity attitude was meant to send this signal to the rest of the EU that southern European economies want relief. And by relief, I mean... More money, more money, more money! More money, more freebies, and no accountability. Because they just want to continue spending unchecked. Not like austerity hasn't helped Spain get on its feet a bit after the global economic crisis kicked Europe in the nards a few years ago. But now austerity bad. We want our free crap back. Trust me, this is the party that will stand in the way of more economic reforms that could help Spain's GDP grow even more. Because see, working is hard. Relying on yourself to make it is hard. This is the same party that's teamed up with an American anti-austerity academic to launch some green energy plan that's supposed to be the savior of Spain and the creator of hundreds of thousands of jobs. Of course, Spain would be spending more than 18 billion euros annually to sustain this genius plan, but hey, they can borrow more money, right? What's a debt level of 100% of GDP between friends, right? These guys sound like they've been taking economic lessons from Paul Krugman, who recently claimed that really it's conservative economics that were responsible for the Greek economic crisis. Seriously, I want some of what this douche is smoking. The party is headed by a guy who strikes me as a filthy hippie of the academic flavor. Pablo Iglesias sports a ponytail and a political science background and probably ugly sandals and sweat-stained Che Guevara t-shirt underneath that button-down, too. Ugh. Last week, one of Podemos' regional deputies branded Greece's deal with Eurozone creditors as a financial coup d'etat against Athens' the Syriza party. He claimed that the rest of Europe is trying to launch a financial coup d'etat in Greece and convert it into a protectorate. And apparently Podemos, a natural ally of Syriza, doesn't like that because its attitude is pretty much the same as Greece's. More money, more money, more money! More money, more freebies, no accountability. Frankly, Greece needs to be put on a leash. If that happens to be a protectorate, so be it. It can't be trusted to do its own finances. It's spent years falsifying data so the EU wouldn't smack it on the pee-pee for being a spending addict. 
It doesn't seem capable of running its own economy, and it's demanding money from its neighbors with little to no accountability. If this agreement was an economic coup d'etat, it was sorely needed. Someone finally sent Greece to the little kid's table, and it's about time. And I'm pretty sure if Podemos gains any more power in Spain, I can see the same situation arising in that country in the long term. Time to rein in these tools. All right, Nikki. It was good to talk with you. See you again next week. You bet. Take care. Nikki blogs at thelibertyzone.com. Plug of the week. I bought a bunch of equipment for the podcast recently. You know, I got the new six track recorder, got some, you know, headphone amplifier and some cables and stuff. And it's really helped a lot. But the thing that I got that's not directly related to recording audio that has been the best thing ever is this uninterruptible power supply that I picked up. I've wanted one for a little while, but I had no idea how useful this thing would be. They're pretty cool. All an uninterruptible power supply, if you don't know, it's a battery. Right. And when the power goes out, it runs your computer. Yeah, it's got a power inverter in it, and it runs off of basically a lawnmower battery. Yeah, they're uh, they're pretty awesome. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I work in IT, and some of the... I remember at my first job, we had these uninterruptible power supplies that were racks and racks and racks of car batteries, mm-hmm. right? So this was for a data center. We had enough power in those uninterruptible power supplies to last the 15 seconds it was going to take before the generator kicked on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I bought myself an APC BR1300G uh, Backups Pro. I figured, you know, I, I was looking at the numbers and I got told, look, you need at least 750 and, you know, more is better. And I'm looking at how much I'm feeling like spending. And I figured, you know what? I'll get the backups pro. It's got the readout. It'll tell me how many minutes I've got left, that sort of stuff. And yeah, it was, it was 120 for, well, I'll spend the extra money. I'll get the 1300. It's 150 bucks is what I paid for this thing. Right. So it's not cheap. And APC is a good brand. Yes, and uh, there was actually Baron. I asked Baron about it. I said, what should I look at? He gave me two brands, APC and another one, and I looked for the other one, and the other one apparently is not in business anymore, or I don't know what happened, so I went with the APC. Well, I got this thing plugged in. Now, I have two laptops. Laptops have their own batteries. I don't see any reason to run my laptops off the uninterruptible power supply. I just changed the laptop power settings so that because I use them as desktops, the, the laptops stay closed. And if you change the power settings... You can tell it, hey, look, if the if it gets unplugged, don't shut off just because the lid's closed. Right. Right. There's a power setting right. in there for that. I, I, I did that. So now if the power goes off, they go into their internal batteries, which, you know, hey, there we go. They got their own uninterruptible power yeah. supply. Right. Right. <laughs> and so I've got these two big monitors. I think the smaller of the two is like a 15 inch and the bigger is like a 21 or something. Big flat panels. Oh, the biggest problem is whenever the power dropped, I'd lose the modem. And I'd lose the router. So the Wi-Fi'd go. Right. Right. So my wife's got her laptop, which she runs on battery unless she plugs it in to power it back up. Right. She likes to cycle the battery, I guess. And she loses the internet because the power dipped and the router died. Have you guys got dirty power there? I mean, Oh my goodness. I had no idea. Right. Hmm. I, you know, stuff, you just fix it. Right. You just go reboot everything. And well, I plug this thing in. I'm running uh, the, the Zoom H6 recorder is plugged into the uninterruptible power supply. The headphone splitter amp, they probably don't take too much power. That's plugged into it. The router, the modem, and both of the flat panels. You know, whoop de doo right? I figured oh, this will probably not be all that important. Well, as soon as the next thunderstorm rolls through, the power is like drops, comes back up, drops, comes right back mm-hmm. up over and over and over again. Well, According to the, 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 the supply here, is it's got, you know, you push the buttons and it'll tell you how many events. There's been 46 events in the last two weeks. <laughs> I think one of them is when I actually physically unplugged it myself. So we'll go with 45 events in the last two weeks. That's a lot. And I'm sitting here, you know, working away, doing something, and the power's dropping out and coming back up and going back out and coming back up. And I just kept working because I didn't care. Right. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, you know, the lights are flickering. Big deal. And it occurred to me about halfway through that that I'd have been cursing and throwing things at this point because my computers that had dropped out and the modem would have died and all any internet work that I was doing, I'd have lost. Right. So 
get an uninterruptible power supply. Check out the show notes. I've got a link to the particular brand that I bought. They have some that are 700 VA. They have some that are 1500 VA. Spend some money. Get yourself an uninterruptible power supply. They are awesome. Yeah, I really need to do that. The server that I run at my house, which I it's actually a home theater PC. Every time we lose the power, I have to like go through this dance to actually get it to come back on. Uh huh. I have to go and I have to turn the power supply off on the back, and then I have to push the power button, and then I have to go back and turn the power supply back on, and then I can push the power button and it'll come back on. Um, if if it loses power and you try to kick it off again, it just sits there and doesn't do anything. It's weird. And see, it's really cool. I'm looking at the numbers. I got like 60 minutes of power. I can run this thing. I'm not even sure that the laptop batteries would last that long, but I've got power forever. <laughs> and mostly what it's done is every time the power drops out, I keep working. It's great. If the power dropped out right now, we could keep recording the podcast. It's awesome. For those of you who read Oleg's blog, uh, you know about all the problems that he has had in the past with, with his computers. And one of the things that he was given part of that was an uninterruptible power supply because dirty power will make your computer do weird things. Yeah, it will. Our special guest this week is Bob Owens, editor of BearingArms.com. He talks about one of the most interesting changes the military has seen in a long time. The United States is going to start issuing hollow point ammunition for use in conventional warfare. Bob Owens is the editor of BearingArms.com, a gunsight alumnus, an East Carolina University graduate who survived five years behind enemy lines in downstate New York, but finally came back home to the Raleigh, North Carolina area, dragging his Yankee wife behind him. Welcome to the show, Bob. Good to be here, Sean. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Bob, you recently wrote an article saying, In a significant doctrinal shift, the U.S. military is relegating full metal jacket pistol bullets to a training role and will be adopting modern hollow point designs similar to those used by most domestic law enforcement agencies and citizens who carry handguns for self-defense. As much as I like the idea that bullets fired by our soldiers should actually work, isn't this against the Geneva Convention? No, it's not, and, and that is a very common misconception. Geneva covered the treatment of prisoners and, and, and civilians during war. It had nothing to do with how wars are actually fought. The actual language that people are getting confused about was from the Hague Conventions, which, which actually predated Geneva. And there was a singular spec within that that you should not use dumb-dumb or bullets that flatten in the body. Well, that's all well and good, and a lot of nations did sign on to that. The United States was not a signatory to that agreement. We have retained the ability to use hollow points or fragmenting ammunition or soft points the entire time. We did agree and, and have used primarily full metal jacket through World War I up until recently, when during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we started using open-tip match ammunition, which is technically hollow points, and we use that quite commonly in rifles. And Special Operations has been using hollow points in uh, some of the combat handguns. What's interesting about this is this is going to be a full-on shift to use hollow points in any combat role against any enemy, and that's going to be new for us. Like you said, the last time I heard about the subject of hollow point bullets coming up was a discussion whether or not open tip match sniper bullets constituted a violation of the laws of war. And the military lawyer said basically, no, look, they're not designed to flatten out in the body. It's just a result of a manufacturing process. This is not an issue. How is this different? Arguably, we're, we're talking about splitting hairs when we're talking about hollow points versus open tip match. Since the 1960s, when we went to 55 grain M193 rounds in the M16, we have been using bullets that turn and tumble and fragment and do really nasty things to the human body. So we're playing games here. What's interesting about this is we are going to bullets that are purposefully designed to expand and dump all their energy in the target in a handgun round. And that is new for us. And it's going to open up some opportunities uh, on the safety side of things. And what was interesting is when they had the Modular Handgun System Industry Day, they had a JAG attorney come out and explain that, look, we're actually going to be able to save lives and, and reduce the threat to civilians downrange. You know, people seem to forget that a lot of the more modern combat, there are no real clear front lines. And we end up having civilians in close proximity fighting against small units in urban settings. And so 
you sit here and you shoot somebody with a 9mm FMJ, just as an example, you may hit the enemy combatant you're aiming at, but that bullet is typically going to retain enough energy to tunnel right on through, come out the other side, and then pose a threat to someone downrange. FMJ rounds tend to tunnel through without causing a significant amount of damage to the person's shot, so you have to shoot them more times. What they're hoping, and this has been sort of borne out in years of police data, both here in the United States and in other countries, that hollow points tend to create a larger wound channel, and they tend to dump more of their energy in the target so they don't overpenetrate. So what happens is, is you have to shoot fewer times to get stops. How will our allies react to the news that we're basically thumbing our nose at a treaty that we followed for 100 years, even though we never signed it? There's obviously going to be some grumbling, and it's typically going to come from your anti-war Labor Party leftist-type views that think in a very juvenile manner that a hollow point round is something that is going to unfairly injure the enemy which is a really odd view because you're trying to kill the enemy in the first place. What this does is this will let us hopefully fire fewer rounds to stop the enemy soldiers faster so we don't have to shoot them as much. And it could be that if we only have to shoot one or two rounds to stop them instead of six, that there might even be a better chance to save their lives once they're, they're taken as prisoner. So in your personal opinion, is moving to hollow point bullets a good idea? Or are we making a mistake? I think it's a... Smart idea. I don't understand we have not why we have not done so before now. Again, this has been proven domestically in law enforcement and other civilians carrying premium hollow points. The FBI recently just went back to nine millimeter after doing tons of research and discovering that hollow points, even in nine millimeter, outperform forty five and forty as hollow points across a, a wider spectrum of different test media and circumstances. And so if you've got a hollow point bullet that can do the job of a larger bullet with less recoil and carry more rounds in the magazine, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. All right, Bob. It was good to talk with you. See you again soon. Good to talk to you, Sean. Bob Owens is the editor of BearingArms.com. He's also a fantastic guy. <laughs> yeah, I like hanging out with him. He actually will come over to the house. He's the first person that we have attached two microphones to the Zoom and like recorded in the same room. So the audio quality, I was really happy with that. Good, good. Fun with headlines. So <laughs> while we were doing pre-show, you were like, hey, you should use this one. And I was like, hey, check the notes. <laughs> hey, look, uh, Ohio man arrested for filming scene of crash that killed 17-year-old boy. Dude, photography is not a crime. That's right. Photography is not a crime. What is the matter with these cops? They're just arresting everybody who pulls out a camera? I guess, you know, respect my authority. Yeah, pretty much. A man in northeastern Ohio has been arrested after recording the scene of a deadly crash, mocking the teenage victims, and attempting to profit from a young man's dying moments. Okay, that's pretty creepy, but... That doesn't really sound illegal to me. A 17-year-old boy lost control of his car shortly before 1 a.m. Monday after crossing a pair of railroad tracks in Lorraine at a high speed. The car crashed into a house and caught fire. Police say that 41-year-old suspect can be heard calling the boys idiots as he recorded the scene of the crash with his cell phone. But that isn't all. The video shows walking over to the car, opening the back door, and leaning into the car to continue filming. He then walks around to the driver's side and records the 17-year-old who later died at a hospital. At no time did attempt to help the injured teenagers. After the incident, approached at least two news organizations and attempted to sell the video. He also reportedly posted the video on Facebook, although it has since been deleted. However, he never offered the video to Lorraine Police Department, according to Cleveland.com. Unlike suspect, several of the residents in the area rushed to help police officers and firefighters pull the teenagers from the car. Suspect was arrested just before noon on Wednesday, according to Newsnet 5. The Lorraine Police Department issued the following statement. The Lorraine Police Department would like to remind citizens that they are allowed and encouraged to help one another in emergencies if they can do so safely, and that rendering aid or comfort to a dying young man and his severely injured friend is a commendable and kindly act. Persons are not, however, allowed to trespass into a person's vehicle criminally and without permission for the seemingly singular cause of filming a young man's dying moments for profit. So he wasn't arrested for filming. He was arrested for trespass. Yes. He was arrested for entering the car illegally. Forcibly and unlawfully. Too bad that nobody recognized what he was doing and said, ah, 
<laughs> is isn't Ohio like a, a castle state on cars? I am not sure. Because, uh, dude, but... let me tell you, if I'm trying to help somebody and some guy's like, you're an idiot, and climbs into the car and starts videotaping the kid who's dying, it's going to be real hard for me not to use deadly force on him. All right. That's Your my lawyer, lawyer is smacking screaming. his head right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but still, they'd have to find 12 people who would convict me for beating the ghoul to death with, you know, whatever was at hand. That's also true. Yeah, let's move on before we get into any more trouble. <laughs> yeah, don't be a jerk. I don't really have a law against being a jerk, but that sounds very much like, oh, we'll find something to stick. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he got arrested for being a jerk. He really did. That's contempt of society right there. <laughs> yeah. You don't leave your important documents laying around where just anyone can pick them up. So why would you sell your computer with all your important data still on the hard drive? Baron tells us how you can protect yourself when selling or disposing of an old computer on Tech Tips. Tech Tips. Tech Tips. You are damaging my comp. Tech Tips with the Baron. Baron, I have some older computer equipment that I'm interested in selling off on Craigslist. Is there anything I should be extra careful about? Yes, Sean. There's actually something very important you need to do. If you're planning on selling an old computer, wipe the hard drive. All right, yeah, reformat it, put Windows on it. Of course, I wouldn't just give them all my files. No, not just format the drive, but wipe it. Formatting a hard drive just marks the blocks on the drive as being free, available for use. The data is largely still all there and intact. You need to run a program which will write to every last block overwriting the data. Well, that sounds simple enough. Well, for the most part, it is. However, the question becomes of how big of a target are you? Wiping will destroy most, but not all of the data. There are bad sectors and other things that the hard drive will remap. And this actually became decent news recently with a bunch of the NSA information that came out. And it ends up that the firmware may or may not actually let you overwrite an old bad sector. So there still may actually be information and data present. SSDs are actually becoming notorious for having some data in places that you just can't quite scrub out again because of the whole bad block issue. If you go with a DOD level wipe with a good solid program, odds are you're going to be fine. All right, and an SSD is a... Solid state disk. Solid state disk, okay. Oh, so like one of those newfangled hard drives that doesn't have any spinny parts. That's correct. So no matter what I might do, I still might be leaking though? Yep, and something may go out. It's a matter of risk and evaluating what you stored on the drive. You can scrub it, and odds are there probably will be nothing but miscellaneous crap, and not the droids the unscrupulous of the world would be looking for. Or you could just rip out the hard drive and not sell it. Get a replacement hard drive for dirt cheap and sell it with the computer so it's complete for whoever's buying it. Or sell it without the hard disk and tell them that they're on their own. Well, can I help alleviate that problem? Or is there a way to make sure if somebody sells my computer when I'm not around, you know, the hard drive gets formatted before they do that? Well, it's up to the person on whether or not they format it. But there is a few things that you can do to actually protect yourself. As I've talked about previously, encrypt all the things. If you're on Windows, enable BitLocker. If you're on OS X, enable the File Vault. If you're in Linux, use an encrypted partition. Formatting the disk will destroy most of the data structure necessary to recover any of the information. Additionally, without the keys, the data on the disk will look random and useless. Again, yet another reason, encrypt all the things. Additionally, if someone breaks into your house and steals your computer, external hard drives, etc., they will largely be useless since they can't authenticate into them. Sucks you've lost your data, but you have your backups, right? But the last thing you want is to be like the U.S. government and have someone using your data against you. All right, Baron. It was good to talk to you. See you again next week. See you next week, Sean. Baron still blogs at the-minuteman.org. So I briefly worked at a data center for a bank. And uh, when we would decommission old servers, we would use a drill press on the hard drives, and then send the hard drives to the industrial shredder. So there was nobody going to get anything off of those. Right. <laughs> but we use the drill press because, hey, what if somebody infiltrated the industrial shredder company and mm-hmm. took our hard drives? Ha <laughs> ha. And you got to drill through the platters, not the control boards, because that won't help you. I'll keep that in mind. I have two old hard drives sitting behind me out of old computers that I've never done anything with. I ought to break out the old drill or something and just drill holes in them and then throw them in the trash. Thermite. Thermite works Thermite, too. Thermite, yeah. What do you think the cops would think about that? Mr. Sorrentino, why are you setting this giant fire in the middle of the street? Oh, well, I'm destroying <laughs> old hard drives. Oh, well, that's cool. <laughs> K 
Carry on, sir. Carry on. Would you like to burn the other one? Damn right I would. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it'll go down like that. The J Block. One of the more popular modern recreational areas that we've seen recently is uh, greenways, walking and bike paths. Well, here's the thing. Greenways are one big, long ambush zone. When I was in the army, they told us, stay off trails, because the enemy had set up an ambush, and they'd attack you there. Now, clearly, we don't have hundreds of armed men running around setting up Claymore mines next to our greenways, but, you know, the principle's still there. Greenways are away from police patrolled areas, and generally they don't have enough traffic on them to ensure that you're always near a witness. An interesting situation happened a couple of weeks ago in Raleigh. A guy got surrounded by three coyotes who seemed to want a piece of his 40-pound dog. Dateline Raleigh, a man called 911 after he and his dog were chased by three coyotes in an NC State University research forest off Wade Avenue last week. I managed to get a hold of a 911 call, and I want you to listen to some parts of it. Here's the first bit where he describes what's going on. Yeah, you know where PNC Arena is? It's right near PNC, and my dog started smelling something. And all of a sudden, I saw I saw the dog, and then I saw three very large-looking wolves, but they started running after me, so I just been standing on top of a, a grate about three feet off the ground, and I'm trying not to run again. Okay, stay on the phone yeah. with me. Okay, now, uh, in North Carolina, they redact some personal information, and they change the sound of the voice. You know, they run it through a voice alter. That's why it sounds kind of funny. But, you know, he had three coyote-looking things. He, wolves, he said, but they're either coyotes or wild dogs. And he grabbed his dog and ran and jumped up onto basically a manhole cover that was elevated for some drainage thing that they got next to the greenway. Okay. Well, within a short time... This uh, 911 operator saying, oh, yeah, yeah, your help is pretty close. The officer is very close to you. Um, okay. He's just going to have to figure out how to get on the greenway. I then we learn it's not quite as close as she promised. All right. Officer is um, close. Uh, I think he's going to park on Wade and walk into the woods to you, so you might see him in a couple of minutes. Okay. But he's close, right? Well. I think he's having a hard time figuring out how to get on the greenway, so it'll be... Um, just a few minutes, okay? We're, they're coming. They're doing the best they can, okay? Okay. Well, how about now? Okay, I'm sorry. We're trying to work it out. It's really hard for them to get on the greenway. It's, okay. it's hard on the maps. They can't. It's hard to see, so I'm giving them directions on how to do it. Okay. We've got satellite photos, maps, instant radio communications, and GPS, right? Do you know if he went through the tunnel? Yeah, they, they went the, yeah he went the wrong way. And they finally resort to just plain old whistling to make contact. Sir, can you yell? Yeah, hold on. Okay. I'm going to whistle, okay? Okay. At long last, at the nine-minute mark on this edited piece of audio, he finally sees the cops coming to rescue him. Thank you very much. Okay, they got you? Yeah, I can see him walking up now. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much. Just point to the direction the coyotes are, okay? Yeah, I appreciate it so much. Thank you, ma'am. No problem at all. Thank you, sir. Take care. Now, good for this man. He made some really good choices. He remained calm until the cavalry arrived to escort him and his dog to safety. But what would he have done if they were people who wanted to rob him instead of coyotes that he could bluff? The press release that I got explained this about the 911 call. The man's remote location resulted in a considerable amount of dead air during the call, and that irrelevant content has been redacted to reduce the file size enough to provide it via the link. So this audio, which has been edited, is still nine minutes long from the time he initiated the phone call to the time that he had a police officer in front of him. And I don't know what they're talking about with this remote location because because Shank Memorial Forest is only about a mile across. It's a total of about 245 acres. And the map looks like it says that the trail he was on is about a mile and a half. If we take the 911 call as perfectly correct, which we know it isn't, it took the cops nine minutes to get to him after he initiated the phone call. And remember, he said that he had to run to safety first and then decide if the coyotes were going to leave before he called. Now, how long would the police have taken to get to you if you were in the same position and it had been two-legged predators instead of four-legged ones? Can you hold off even two unarmed attackers for nine minutes while the cops try to figure out how to get onto the trail? Carry a gun. It's legal in North Carolina to carry a gun on the Greenway. Your job is to be alive when the cops get there. Because he was on University of North Carolina property, does that still count? I don't believe that that area 
actually is property of the university in the sense that it is a, you know, uh, educational property in North Carolina. Okay. They would really have to, in, if it was posted. Right. You know, right. hey, this is a, but you can't reasonably expect ordinary people are going to know, hey, if crossed into, I mean, it's not, I know that that's what they do in your town, but yeah, Tennessee doesn't make that distinction. No, they actually have to post it <laughs> here. They actually have to have posting before it, it get they can get anywhere with it. And if you pull out a gun and shoot somebody on the green, what are they going to do? Are they going to arrest you for it? Not here. Yeah. Well, we already know that about Tennessee. And still, you'd have to find 12 people that said, hey, you know, <laughs> this person was getting attacked on the Greenway. Yeah. Well, something interesting happened to our sponsor, Andrew Branca. This week is the second anniversary of the George Zimmerman acquittal, and Andrew received a surprise phone call from Don West, one of Zimmerman's two lawyers. They talked for about 45 minutes. At the end of the call, Andrew asked Don to leave a voicemail message for the blog that Andrew writes for, LegalInsurrection.com. Here is that voicemail. This is Don West, co-counsel for George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin shooting. Today's the second anniversary of George Zimmerman's acquittal. Because of the hectic pace of the trial, I've only recently begun to review much of the coverage of the case. And I want to compliment Legal Insurrection, Professor Jacobson, and especially Andrew Branca for their exceptional coverage of the trial. The facts of the case were reported fairly and accurately, and the legal analysis was always first rate. Where so many news outlets and bloggers seemed unconcerned with the actual facts or the law, and were content to combine misinformation with their own misunderstanding, it's obvious from the reporting that legal insurrection was genuinely interested in the truth and fully understood the legal issues of the case. Your effort is truly appreciated. Thank you. So one of the two guys who successfully defended George Zimmerman says that Andrew Branca knows what he's talking about. Wouldn't you like to learn the law of self-defense from him? Go to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash variety to sign up for a state-specific law of self-defense class in your area. Remember to use discount code variety at checkout for 10% off everything that you buy. And don't forget that we're still accepting donations at gofundme.com forward slash gunblogvarietycast. Every little bit helps towards getting us some new and better audio equipment. It looks like the status fools at Armed with Reason have decided to make the jump to being full-time soldiers in the Bloomberg Brown Noser Brigade, and they've decided that the silver bullet that will stop so-called gun violence is national permits to purchase handguns. Well, Weird tells us what he thinks in This, this week, week in, in Anti-Gun anti Nuttery. Well, hey, Weird, how's it going? It is going well, Sean. So what do you got for us this week? Oh, that gift that keeps on giving. Evan and Devin of Armed with Reason are again on the trace. Michael Bloomberg's web portal. Oh, them too. Yep. So now they have the greatest panacea of all. It'll cure everything. National permits to purchase. Don't get stuck on stupid. Hey, Sean, why don't you read the article for me and I will fisk away. All right. Earlier this month, Representative Chris Van Hollen, a Maryland Democrat running for Senate, introduced legislation that would put a surprisingly formidable obstacle between dangerous people and guns. A permit. A uh, permits. What will cure everything. To be clear, Van Hollen's bill and a Senate version proposed by Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy has little chance of becoming law while NRA-backed Republicans control both chambers of Congress. Nevertheless, the legislation contains what may be the most potent ideas for reducing gun violence that are currently under consideration at the federal level. So this is an insane crank law with no support and no hopes of passing. This is pure desperation from the losing side. To buy a handgun, a person would need to first possess a permit, which itself would be contingent on satisfying a number of requirements, the most significant of which is passage of a background and criminal record check. But the permit-to-purchase system the legislation seeks to create goes further than the standard background check procedure in place in most parts of the country. Prospective gun purchasers have to apply for their permit in person at a local law enforcement office, have their fingerprints taken, and submit a photograph along with their paperwork. Once the permit is granted, it's good for five years. Holders who remain in good legal standing would not need to complete further background checks, as gun buyers do now, for additional gun purchases made during that period. What the hell? I mean, why would you need to apply in person at a law enforcement office? And why would you need to submit fingerprints? Also, why would it need to be renewed every five years? If you get convicted of a crime, they take your permit away. 
it sounds like this is an anti-gun tactic number one, which is harass and annoy lawful gun owners. A team led by David Hemingway, Ph.D., at the Harvard School of Public Health recently conducted a survey of Massachusetts police chiefs in order to understand their reasons for rejecting permit applications under the state's discretionary system. The local police chiefs typically know more about the people in their community than does a national computer, Hemingway wrote. He's got to be kidding me. Also, interesting that it's always the same people that pop up with these, you know, conclusive results towards gun control. The police chiefs interviewed in the study were particularly cautious when a permit seeker had a history of assault, domestic abuse, mental illness, or substance abuse. Under the existing federal background check system, persons with a pattern of drug or alcohol addiction or a record of violent misdemeanors are typically cleared for gun purchases, despite those risk factors. A discretionary permit-to-purchase system allows local law enforcement to consider such warning signs and withhold permits when justified. All right, as a Massachusetts resident, I've got to chime in on how it actually works, you know, in the field. So in Massachusetts, people rarely get their permits denied because police need to do so in writing with justification. And every case that has been uh, challenged has been overturned. Because as ominous as all those citations sound, if the person hasn't been convicted of a crime or committed by a judge, any discretionary denials is in violation of due process of the law. What happens in Massachusetts is the applicants are given lesser permits because if the chief grants you a permit, he doesn't have to answer why he didn't give you the permit you applied for. How do I know this? Well, when I moved to Medford, Massachusetts from Maine, I had never met the chief of police. I never even talked to an officer. I talked to the chief of police secretary who denied me right off without even knowing my name. I did talk to a police officer when I moved to Belmont, Mass, who openly disagreed with the chief's policy, but again pointed out that everybody got a restricted permit the first time they were issued. In my current town, I still haven't met the chief. But here, like all gun-friendly towns in Massachusetts, the chief simply refuses to exercise his privilege to refuse. May issue is always either no issue or shall issue, depending on the political climate. Then they go and cite the Missouri study that we talked about last week. Notice how they talk about Missouri and Connecticut, but don't cite studies of Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. Want to guess why, Sean? (laughs) Not only do permit-to-purchase policies have the potential to dramatically reduce gun violence, they also add powerful safeguards against guns landing in the wrong hands. Under existing federal law, the sellers in private firearm transactions are not required to ask buyers for identification. They are under no obligation to ensure that the guns aren't being purchased for someone else. So technically, this is true. There is no law requiring private sellers to ID the interested party before a sale or inquire about that other dude that's waiting alongside and appearing very interested in the transaction. Still, in the event that the ATF traces an illegally sold gun back to you, such actions could bite you in the ass. I've seen lots of private sales at gun shows and meetups, and people always ask to see ID just to make sure they're not selling to a minor or illegally across state lines. It's just the simplest and easiest way to cover your rear, so why would you not do it? This is why, in spite of federal law limiting the sales of handguns to persons under 21, an 18-year-old high school senior could walk into a gun show in most states right now and have a good chance of purchasing a handgun, no questions asked. The cited article notes that while some states restrict sales to people under 21 when buying handguns, the citation of this statement is that in most states, it is legal. Unsurprisingly, private sales account for the massive numbers of firearms used in crime. A survey of prison inmates on this question found that prohibited individuals purchased their firearm from a federally licensed retailer only 3.9% of the time. A permit-to-purchase requirement would close this private sales loophole by requiring both licensed dealers and unlicensed vendors to sell firearms only to someone with a valid permit. What they don't cite is how the criminals do get their guns. They steal them or they borrow them from friends and family who likely know what they're getting into. Here in Mass, where they can't do that legally, they do it anyway. They also cite straw buyers who by definition know they are breaking the law. What is this supposed to do? When Baltimore suffered a surge of gun violence at the start of this summer, gun rights advocates used this as proof that Maryland's new gun laws aren't working. But what those critics ignore is that the majority of Maryland's crime guns are trafficked in from outside the state 
a byproduct of the fact that neither Pennsylvania, West Virginia, nor Virginia have permit to purchase systems of their own. Except it's not true. ATF trace data shows the largest number of trace guns are from Maryland, and the average time to crime number is almost 13 years. This is yet another stupid law that will not reduce crime, but will infringe on rights. Any wonder why this bill will never see the light of day? All right, Weird. It was good to talk to you. I'll see you again next week. See you next week, Sean. In addition to appearing here, Weird is a regular host at The Squirrel Report and blogs at weirdworld.com. That's W-E-E-R-D world.com. Stuff that grinds my gears. I live in North Carolina. Do you know how rarely it snows here? Maybe 10 days a year if we're, like, really lucky? Right. How come every time I pass a bridge, there's a sign in front of it that says, Bridge Ices Before Road? Uh, because the bridge ices before the road does? In July, south of the Mason-Dixon line? Well, they're not going to take the signs down and then put them back up. I mean... How about not put them up in the first place? Is there anybody who doesn't know that the bridge ices before the road for those 10 days? Maybe. Then they should crash. Then that would teach them a lesson, wouldn't it? (laughs) They won't forget next time. And maybe they'll tell some friends. Because you know what? Idiots like that probably have idiot friends. And you know what? What's the best way to learn anything is when your idiot friend gets killed doing something, then maybe you won't do it. I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about putting a firework on top of my head. You know what? There are some people that all they are good for is they serve as a warning to others. Do not be this stupid. Now, it really bugs me, this proliferation of irrelevant signs on the side of the road. The no passing zone sign. I mean, you know, they got lines in the road, right? They got dots on one side and a, and a straight line on the other. If the dots are on your side, you can pass. If the dots are on the other side, they can pass. If You've got a heavy line or they have a heavy line. That means you can't pass. There's no need to put up a sign on the other side of the road that says no passing. I'm coming up to a bridge in July. It's not icing. I don't care what's going on. I don't need a bridge. Might ice before the road sign. And if it is going to snow, I already know. So stop wasting money on these signs. I think what's really going on here is the federal government, they take all that gas tax money and they give it back to the states because, you know, it has to be spent down here, right? Well, then they have to tell us how to spend it. Well, you know, we're going to give you this much for road signs. Well, if you don't have any road signs to put up, then you don't get the money. So what does every government entity do when they get told, hey, you get this much for road signs? They build that many road signs, even if they're completely freaking irrelevant, like the bridge ices before the road sign. 99% of the time, there are no ice anywhere. Not on the bridge, not on the road, not on the side. Don't need it. But we're going to put up a stupid ass sign. Just because, you know, if we don't, we won't get the money. Make it stop. So, what's bugging you this week? So, uh, I had to go on the other side of town earlier this week, and I uh, was a little bit early for my meeting, and so I went to go get gas, and uh, there was video advertisements built into the gas pump, and they were all turned up to 11 <laughs> <sighs> It was so loud and so annoying, and no, I really don't care about your... 13% APY gas card. Wow. Yeah, you know, wow. Yeah, I, I really don't care about that. No, I just, I'm, I'm here to get gas. And for the love of God, just please stop advertising to me all the time. Now, I don't know if I'm more sensitive to this now that I don't have cable and haven't had cable for the last two years. So I don't really see commercials except occasionally in the break room when CNN is on a commercial. But uh, man, that makes me mad. I just wanted to like smash it. I don't even have CNN in the break room because I don't have a break room. Right. So I don't see commercials ever. I don't listen to commercial radio. I listen to podcasts. Right. Listen to Pandora radio. Right. I got rid of my satellite radio because I didn't want to listen to somebody talking in between the music. Yeah. And then I went straight to Pandora. So yeah, we just got rid of our cable like a year, year and a half ago. No commercials. It's a beautiful thing. Mm. But guess what the next innovation is? They're going to start selling lottery tickets. At the gas pump. They're going to do it here in North Carolina. Really? I'm serious. I just saw that today. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. There's no potential for misuse there. (laughs) Well, at least people (laughs) won't be leaving. perfect. (laughs) At least people won't be leaving their car running with their three-year-old in the back to go in and get cigarettes, beer, and lottery tickets. 
and then getting the ki- the car stolen and the kid kidnapped. Well, they still have to go inside for the beer and the cigarettes. Right, but, you know, maybe they won't, uh, because they have to stay out for the lottery tickets, they won't go in. At least that's one thing that they won't go in for. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that stuff's going to spread over here, too. Oh, I'm sure. Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> well, that's our show for the week. Thanks again to Rob Allen for our music, and thank you for listening to the Gun Blog Variety Cast. Constructive criticism can be sent to Sean at SeanSorrentino.com and hate mail to WizardPC at GunsCarsTech.com. Show notes can be found at GunBlogVarietyCast.com forward slash episode 48. And since you've stuck around after the music, wanted to say goodbye to one of my favorite podcasts, The Gun Dudes. Their last episode was this week. Uh, They said that they might do a couple here and there, but, you know, The Gun Dudes as we know it is over. So thanks, guys. You're one of the podcasts, one of the very few podcasts that I listened to before I got an iPhone and podcasts became easy. But every week I download you and listen to you. So thank you. One of the things that I wanted to do on this podcast was try to be just a bit like the gun dudes and I'm going to miss you.